0: This is a conversation with Dr. Elaine Hui of Penn State University on her book, Hegemonic Transformation, The State Laws and Labor Relations in Post-Socialist China. My conversation with Dr. Hui looks at a central question. How did a China that convinced its citizens that socialism and communism was the way to see the world shift and convince them now in the present that neoliberal capitalism is the natural way the world should be, at least in China. Dr. Hui discusses how this ideological transformation and state hegemony took place after Mao's death, how it's recently accelerated under the current reign of Xi Jinping, and how workers in China who are refusing to accept capitalist hegemony are rebelling against the new neoliberal state of things in present-day China. It's a fascinating conversation that discusses hegemony, ideology, and how our worldviews are created. It should be of interest both to those interested in China, but also to those globally wondering how we've arrived at this world of capitalism without any other alternative. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast where we speak to fascinating guests from around the world, or you can go to our website asiaarttours.com for print interviews. Here's my conversation now with Dr. Elaine Hui of Penn State University on hegemony, capitalism, and present-day China. I hope you enjoy our conversation today.
1: So I'm Illy Ho. Um, currently, I teach in the School of Labor and Employment in, Rel- in Relations in Penn State.
0: So we'll be discussing uh, your work, which looks into hegemony uh, in China, what hegemony means, and I think what's most interesting is in your text, you talk quite a bit about. Um, when we are taught hegemony as sort of lay people, we just sort of are taught it's it's just there. It's, it's just, you're being brainwashed every day, it's like that John Carpenter film, They Live. Uh, but what you essentially are saying throughout much of your work is this is a very active process that's constantly being contested between the state, uh, capital, and then those of us who are dominated by those forces, both capitalists who have to continue to be capitalists and laborers who have to continue to be laborers. So I'm wondering if you could talk about, first, for a lot of scholarship on China, it just says China's authoritarian. How does your research uh, interrogate this and maybe call into question this very this strain of, of China scholarship by looking at how hegemony actually needs to be approved and won um from China's citizens? Those are uh, very good questions. Um, so I have written
1: uh, a number of work on this topic of hegemony. So um, actually I try to classify the development of China after 1978 into different stages. So from 1978 to up till Wu uh, Jintao and Wen Jiabao period, I classified it as a period uh, that covered uh, Deng Xiaoping and uh, Jiang Zemin. I co- I classify that period as a period of passive revolutions. So during that period, um, so uh, sorry for a lot of terms. So, but during that period, to put it simple, simply, um, I think the Chinese state uh, has been driving, was driving their capitalist reform with uh, a lot of forces, coercions, and is basically largely driven by the state and set off with the capitalist clash being playing the major role. So, but then over time, we see that especially during the one era, um, this type of passive revolutions is fading away. Uh, the party state is increasingly playing less coercive role. Of course, it still does play some coercive role, but we saw that um, both the state and capitalist class, they try to proactively build up some uh, common sense or some worldviews for the working class, which will uh, try to uh, obtain their consent to the to the leaders. So um, Matthew, you just mentioned about oh, there's a lot of scholarships, a lot of research that focus on the authoritarian dimensions of the state. And I think this is related to the first period that I just mentioned. This is the passive revolutions that took place starting from 1978 till uh, Danzimans period and because during that period of time the state is true it's true that the states will use a lot of more force uh, forces and coercive tactics to rule a society um, but then with the tao when that uh, period I uh, mentioned that I feel like um, according to my research uh, they started to use more uh, policies laws or even media to try to uh, give consent to the working class and try to obtain their Uh, I I said, I mean, I mean, give concessions to the working class and try to give, obtain the consent. So I think this, for this period of time, if we just focus on the authoritarian nature of the state, it may be a little bit misleading. Uh, We wouldn't, because one major puzzle that I have is if the Chinese state is so authoritarian, um, why a lot of workers that I have encountered in my, in, in my period in China, they seem to be speaking favorably of the Chinese state. So this is actually how I started my research. I was like, yeah, are quite a lot of workers I talked to. Um, of course, they have criticisms. Of course, they have grievance, But um, they they actually also have some um, give some credit to the party states. They were not totally are uh, just being negative about the development of China. So then I feel like oh, there's something something to it. It's not just coercion. It's not just force that can get their workers to think positively of the state. And then later on, I look up some statistics. I think um, there's a, a survey done by, I forgot which organizations, let me check. Are yeah, pureglobal.org. Pure so it shows, they ask the Chinese citizens, it did, it did a survey over uh, like a decade or more than a decade period of time. It just asked your, Chinese people or citizens like, oh, how satisfied you are with the development of China. So um, in 2002, just 48% of the respondents said they're satisfied. But then in 2005, it raised already to 70%. And then after 2010, or even actually before 2010, it raised to 87% or more than 80%. So I, when I look at statistics like this, I was like, yeah, I mean, if it's just the authoritarian characteristic of the state, their, 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 their results will not be like this. So workers or the citizens in general will not be that happy or that satisfied. So then I started to, um, this research projects and try to see besides the coercive forces of the state, what actually. Um, Mixture workers or the citizens, they they, they give the consents to the development of China. What makes them feel be satisfied?
0: So uh, hegemony can be this sort of invisible term. And what I liked uh, in your book is that you look at documents like China's Constitution, uh, as well as the formation of groups like the Politics and Law Commission uh, within the CCP. And you can actively see how, uh, to use a Gramscian term that you introduced throughout your book, There, it's a top-down revolution of, of how China became capitalist. This was not a bottom-up revolution uh, like the bourgeois in France. This was top-down, actively initiated by the party when it started to run into uh, the limits of growth under its past state socialist state capitalist uh whatever term you'd prefer probably you're going to be the expert there but it's it's prior model during the dung or during the mao era prior to dung of uh, economics and obviously for a lot of people who want to understand china without learning chinese which unfortunately i think there's a lot of people who research and write about china but um it can be difficult for lay people to sort of get a handle on the fact that wrap their head around that the Communist Party of China is in fact extremely oriented towards capitalism. So just for um, lay people or people who want to become better informed about China, how can they trace these invisible processes of capitalism or establishing hegemony through some of these living documents, legislative bodies, Um, how can they better find the breadcrumbs for where China uh, is heading and how China is trying to establish hegemony?
1: Maybe I can take our labor laws in general as an example. So um, during uh, to Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin's period, Mm -hmm. um, the government kind of made uh, new laws like our, the labor laws and then the trade union laws. So, but then back at that period of time, as you as you put it more uh, user-friendly terms, like it's a bottom, it's top-down period. Uh, so those laws, they were made to try to make capitalism possible in China. So before uh, the implementation of labor law reforms, uh, for example, there's uh, the, the job allocations is being arranged by the party states, uh, there's no labor market. Uh, there's no uh, like uh, wage determinations in a capitalist way. Wages were determined largely by seniority, um, and so once they got rid of those type of like uh, labor protections from the socialist period, and they, once they want to start the capitalist uh, arrangement in China, they need some capitalist labor relations infrastructures. So th- during the period from 1978 till like maybe late 90s. So the labor laws that are being implemented, they serve the purpose of laying down the capitalist infrastructures for having, for implementing capitalist labor relations. For example, now um, they have to make sure that there's contract being signed between labor and the capitalists. So, so that, that, that that means that labor or labor power is can is something that can be sold to the capitalists, so they have to make sure there's a contract system, um, and then they have to get rid of their lifelong employment relations, and then they have to make sure that um, um, there's a labor market, um, and then they also have to make sure. Oh, if their workers they have our grievances, if they don't want them to go on a revolutions, what can they do? Then they come up with the labor dispute resolutions, which emphasize on our mediation arbitrations. Um, so during that period of time, they have uh, implemented in place a set of labor laws and a set of labor relations that is to promote capitalism. There's a top down uh, implementations. But then um, on and off, there's a lot of labor resistance, labor struggles, labor strike, so starting from the who Wan period, which is starting from 2000, early 2000s, 2000 till uh, 2013. So because of the concern for social stability and because of the concern for legitimacy of the Communist Party, um, the who Wan uh, government, they started to proactively adopt more new laws. That is not just for the sake of building capitalist labor relations, but also for the sake of trying to give more concessions to the workers, to give them more uh, protections so that they won't go on uh, uh, revolutions. So examples of those labor laws, including like um, the minimum wage policies, they have a minimum wage ordin- uh, ordinance, which was implemented in 2003 or 2004, which makes sure that workers have a minimum income. Um, and then in 2008, it implemented labor contract law to make sure that employers really sign contracts with their employees and workers so that they really, workers really are, have are a legal status of being a workers and being entitled to all the legal uh, uh, benefit. And then in 2011, it implemented the social insurance law to make sure that workers stay their, their retirement and the other types of insurance that are protect So. we can see that um this type of labor laws or labor relations regulations um during the whole one period is is of course uh it's trying to pacify the workers to make them less angry um but it is more also about um trying to get the consent to their to their capitalist relations and to give more legitimacy to the party state
0: what's really interesting though in reading your book and comparing it to let's say Uh, late Soviet scholarship. So I always say, Alexei Yurchak's Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More is like the gold standard for uh, if you're interested in perestroika when when the the Soviet state essentially imploded. But I'm less clear about China and sort of what appears through your text and other labor scholars to be more of a guided collapse of the iron rice bowl that... um, moving from Mao to Deng. It wasn't sort of this uh, out-of-control process um, like perestroika uh, as China moved towards a more explicitly capitalist, global capitalist model. It was, as we said before, very top-down. So what I'm curious about is if the Chinese state prior to Shenzhen 1982, and I'm sure there were fits and starts before then, but before Deng's uh, southward trip, it had built probably all these ideological state apparatuses, uh, uh, pushes within education, structures within government that were more explicitly socialist. Did it just uh, reorient those then towards producing a capitalist hegemony amongst Chinese citizens Or did it need to create entirely new ideological state apparatuses, technologies of governments, as we talked about, uh, very different labor laws? How did they shift so people were not going one minute, you know, they open the newspaper, it says this cat is black. The next day they say this cat is white. And they're saying, well, which color is the cat? How did they go from much more explicit socialism under a, a Mao era to this, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white under dung and not feel this really violent ideological jolt that would have led to revolutionary anger or disruption against the party. I think this may be related to um, some other
1: questions you are interested in is about like, um, how, how has the party state used their socialist legacy or the socialist rhetoric to build the capitalist hegemony? So in fact, I think from socialism to capitalisms um, in terms of ideology is not totally a, a, like a, a disconnections. Somehow it is connected. The the party states in China has been skillful to, or has been skillful to use some of those ideology from the states of socialisms to strengthen the, the role of the state and capitalists in the capitalist period. So for example, um, there, during the socialist period, they emphasize a lot on their um their their, their role of the state and representing the workers, right? And they said the workers share the work class, they are they're, they're the best of the society, but the state represents the workers. So their their state has been portrayed as a being pro labor during the socialist state. So and then actually, um, this pro state pro labor image of the state has been used or has been our uh, Used to to maintain their legitimacy of the state, in the capitalist period, it still sell itself as uh, pro labor, uh, and then it also a lot of workers that I talk to, they still believe that uh, the state is actually pro labor or they're labor friendly, um, and therefore they believe that the labor law is also protecting them. So this pro labor image that inherited from the socialist period somehow. Um, is uh, still still lingering there in the capitalist period Um, and another thing is about their during the socialist period there's economic hardship right so there's a little bit of political chaos a lot of workers or a lot of people they may not have a job or they may not have enough to eat so but then this economic hardship or political hardship during the socialist state period um actually form a very interesting contrast with their capitalist period. Some workers or even the politicians in China or the leaders in China, they somehow consciously, or unconsciously make a contrast like, oh, nowadays in China, we're doing much better. Uh, workers now have a job. And some workers told me that now they can eat meat every day while in the state socialist period, they can they they only eat meat very uh, irregularly or not very often. So then this type of so-called economic prosperity um, as promoted by the party state or as witnessed by the people makes them feel like, oh, this is something that is good, especially in contrast to the economic hardships and political hardships during their, the state socialist period. And of course, um, uh, the chaos, political chaos during their socialist period, also makes people very scared and now they feel like things are calmer. Um, so then I, I myself feel like there's a continuity are between the socialist period and the capitalist periods in the ways I just described. It's not a total disconnection.
0: Something that still remains confusing to me about um, the, the CCP is you'll see Xi Jinping encouraging sort of Marxist epistemology uh, at, a, at a national level. You'll see figures like Bol Lai. Uh, And obviously, Bo Xilai is just a charlatan, but still, you'll see him using uh, imagery from 1960s era uh, China to try to gin up uh, political support. And then you'll run into groups like Jacek, who, who take that Marxist epistemology and actually put it into practice. And the state goes, no, 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 we don't, we didn't mean by that. So I, I'm wondering about this, this sort of uh, disconnect that I really do not understand of, okay, we're going to use this legacy, but you can never use it. It's like a museum artifact. It's You can never touch it. You can never actually put it into a real day-to-day practice, but you, you're expected to, if, if you want to be a good citizen, be very knowledgeable about things like Marcus, Marxist epistemology. So... Why does the state sort of arm its citizens, I guess, metaphorically, and then say, but you can never fire these guns? Why would it continue to teach this, this Marxist epistemology um, if we've seen it create groups like JASIC, and, and I think some younger people are now more interested in actual Marxist analysis of capitalism. Why does it continue to do this when it seems so dangerous to give its citizens this type of knowledge?
1: The major reason is it has to uh, justify a like a, a strong state or justify the interventions of the state in many dimensions of the daily lives of your citizens, right? Of the people in China. So um, it wouldn't claim that oh, because I'm an authoritarian state because I want to cling to power forever, then that I I I I I I'm here. So. There, for for any states, not just Chinese states, they need to build up their legitimacies in particular ways. So in their Western society, the legitimacy of their states is usually built up appoint their democratic elections. So, but then in authoritarian states, they need another way to justify the legitimacies of the state. Um, so, I think like clinging to their Maoism or the twisted Marxism's ideologies will help justify, oh, why the state is intervening and uh, a lot of different dimensions in their, in, their, in, their, in their daily lives of people and in the in in politics. And it justifies their uh, existence of their communist party um, because uh, they believe that, I mean, according to the twisted Marxist ideologies or according to their Maoist ideologies, they believe that they need a party state that's strong enough to fight for the working class. Um, and to lead the whole country to move from eventually to communism or so socialisms. So I think this is one way to to, to, to justify their, uh, their existence, to, legit, to legitimize their, the party states. And of course, when, if you're really like um, trying to, to turn those ideologies as their uh, weapons against the states, you will be in danger because uh, nobody will expect those ideologies to be really, we practice in, in a real sense or meaningful sense.
0: Turning to your text, specifically you have this term double hegemony. I'm going to just read a quote and then we'll discuss it in brief. Um, the labor law system is a vital vehicle through which the Chinese party state has constructed the capitalist hegemony. It has produced double hegemony, which seeks to deflect workers' opposition against both the market economy and the party state. Concerning capital labor relations, the normalizing mechanism embedded in the labor law system has has legitimized capitalist principles such as private property rights, surplus, value extraction, wage labor, commodification of labor, and so forth. And as you discuss in your book, very simply but also very brilliantly, like the neutrality of laws is that's how they work. That you just see this law and you don't think about where it comes from, you just sort of obey it, and by obeying it, you're legitimating whatever it is you're happening to obey. Authoritarianism, all it is, is there's an authority, and it, once you go beyond that, you meet authoritarianism. But uh, for this question, specifically this uh, this quote, I'm interested, a lot of the writing about nationalism in China is very bad, as I'm sure you know. Um, how do you see double hegemony as maybe explaining why the CCP reacts as it does um, towards criticism from other governments, even though it's linked up to a global neoliberal capitalist system in, you know, it's it's the main hub. Well, how, what, how does double hegemony help us better understand um, the acquiescence and cooperation China shows with the global neoliberalism, yet at the same time, uh, Within the political, within the the framework of the nation state, it can often come across as this very uncooperative, agitated presence. How, how does double hegemony help us better understand this contradiction of cooperative capitalism from China, but at times a very antagonistic nation state within the global political order? So about the the two sides to the double hegemony, I us
1: to. Protect the party state and one is to protect their capitalist relations and um, as you ma- just mentioned like um, their the labor laws or their hegemony being built in China they they're definitely pro-market or definitely pro they may not necessarily be definitely pro market but definitely to capitalism so um, and basically um, it has our uh, the Chinese party state in terms of its external relations with other countries in terms of economics agendas um even though its rhetoric is a little bit different from the Western major powers but we we all we all see that there's an economic interest that the Chinese government or Chinese party state is seeking in other countries so there's no doubt that the Chinese state or Chinese government is trying to promote their own economic interests but maybe in with different rhetoric and different discourse but then about their um the the, the conflicts or the antagonism, such as mentions between the Chinese government, Chinese Party State, and other Western countries. Um, I think there there could be two reasons to that. So um, because the double hegemonies being built in China, um, there has a number of characteristics or is built upon certain foundations, one of which is nationalism. Um, in, in my book I mentioned that um, actually the nationalists uh, feelings is being used to strengthen their workers or the working class consents to the party state. So some workers that I talked to, they felt like they were exploited by the capitalists, by the employers. But they said that, oh, but I can tolerate that for a short period of time because that will contribute to the growth of their country. And as a Chinese, I feel as a Chinese people, I feel very proud of the development of China. It's become stronger in terms of economics and politics at a global level. So we see that nationalism is uh, one of the strong elements that back up this double hegemonies. So, um, and therefore, uh, why, I mean, one reason why China is uh, is being so tough at the inter- global level is, uh, is that may help strengthen the nationalist ideas back home. Um, but then another reason is about hegemony at a global level. So my book is about hegemony at the national domestic level. Um, it's about hege- hegemony at the global level. Like U.S. has been the hegemon, and the global political economy. And before U.S., it was U.K. And everybody now is discussing: Is the hegemony of the U.S. declining? Is China the hegemon now in the global economy? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is, Ch- is Is it just Ch- U.S. Def- uh, kind of falling, declining, and China is rising? There's no hegemon right now. So I think. Um, from the Chinese government's perspective, Chinese state's perspectives, um, probably now is the right timing for them to be more aggressive or more assertive, assertive at a global level. Because, because during the past four years, five years, Donald Trump was in charge of the U.S. And then he was withdrawing from a lot of political dimensions, and, and international dimensions, international arena. So then China has a, has a, has a gap to fill. And China, and also not not just in the past few years, actually, I believe in the past decades or two, China has been quietly building up relations with a lot of various countries, like with Europe, with our Latin America, African countries, et cetera. So it has actually done a lot of work that a lot of people haven't noticed. But now it feels like it's the moment for them to be assertive at a global level, to be more visible. So I think it's because of this, like... um about the context of our building up hegemonies at a global level and also strengthening the nationalist, nationalist ideas, which will back up their legitimacy of the party the state back home that China feels like now maybe be uh, the time for us to be more aggressive internationally.
0: And just a short speculative question on that. Does China, because of this double hegemony, require its private capitalists to be explicitly nationalistic? Or has that always been a component of this era of global neoliberal capitalism that uh, if, if you're going to extend your capital globally in these other places, you're representing both the interests of the capitalist class but also of the nation state? Um, I'm not clear because China is a bit more involved uh, in this top-down way. How does it govern uh, its global capitalists in a way that doesn't threaten the other aspect of its hegemony, which is this uh, nation-state nationalism aspect? I think
1: they're, they're going out, like for the China, Chinese investment to go out, this, rich, this policy started since 2000s, early 2000s. Um, so I think at first is, um, when investments from China to go overseas is a little bit unregulated, I and mean, they like, there's not many regulations that they need to follow. But um, I think after Xi Jinping came into power, um, he started to kind of like be more controlling. So because of his new regulations and rules, a lot of like major Chinese investors, they have problems back home and they have to move through their investments from other countries. And I think it's about also about the questions of how comfortable the parties they feel about the investors overseas. How, mu- how much control they think they have. So um, they for sure do not want their capitalists overseas to be out of its control. Um, they want them to be following the party lines, to be, of course, like what she said, to be the national alert. And that's the reason that Xi Jinping tightened the control for the Chinese investors overseas. I forgot, in 2017 or something like that.
0: You cite Gramsci and uh, Polansas throughout your text to look at uh, how the state uses law to create hegemony and how law itself is uh, an uneven fight. You know, labor has one hand tied behind its back, but it's still a contested area between uh, capitalists and, and laborers. So this is from your book. Uh, As Gramsci stresses, the concessions granted by the capitalist class are usually of an economic corporate kind. Such sacrifices and such a compromise cannot touch the essential. Uh, Therefore, in China, legal concessions often take the forms that are compatible with a capitalist legal framework, rather than ones that essentially alter the asymmetrical capital-labor relations. These legal concessions may contradict the short-term particular interests of individual capitalists, but in the long run, they will consolidate the general interests of capitalism as a system, and of the capitalists as a class. Now, you talk in two really interesting ways through transmutation and atomization, how laws may deliver sort of, uh, what's the word, Um, very limited victories to workers, but ultimately are uh, designed to further strengthen, and allow the advance of capitalism. I'm wondering if you could talk about this, this section in a bit more detail, perhaps using uh, some of the phrases like transmutation and atomization that have been used to help workers develop a loyalty to the party state without realizing, wait a minute, the party state is why I'm having to apply for these labor laws in the first place, because I'm being exploited as a worker. The party state has allowed this exploitation. Um, so could could you talk a bit about Chinese labor law in this way and, and how the party's been very clever in gaining loyalty from workers while being the ones who are supervising their exploitation? During the 2000s and even before 2015, there have been quite a lot of
1: new labor laws being put in place. Um, so some scholars' immediate response is, oh, this, they're good, they're pro-labor. And of course, I mean, like, it's always better to have some legal protections than not. Um, but my perspective is that um, a lot of those legal protections, they encourage individual, um, not even resistance, individual response to our capitalist exploitations. They direct workers to go, for, to, go to the court to sue their employers or to direct the direct workers to have mediations with workers and arbitration uh, with employers. I mean, and to have arbitrations with employers rather than and trying to suppress the collective actions. It the labor laws in China does not have a very comprehensive collective framework for managing labor relations. It mentioned a little bit about collective consultations, um, but they don't really have a comprehensive legal framework for collective bargaining. So. Um, because this idea that labor laws is uh, legal or workers or Chinese citizens is just what is legal. So then oftentimes, uh, sometimes the workers, they have grievances, um, they would want to follow the law. And they think the laws is protecting them. But then the law is directing them towards those individual optimized platforms, which uh, which is not trying to encourage them to collectively, for example, go on strike or to collectively negotiate with employers. That's why that's what I mean by optimizations of uh, workers actions or their subjectivities by the labor laws. So about the term transmutations. So I said that um, the labor laws help uh, to protect the central party states from being challenged by the workers because um, in China, the, the, the labor law system or the, actually the whole legal system is quite different uh, from many countries. Um, so the central government oftentimes come up with a our, our rough plan or rough legal documents uh, or rough legal implementations uh, for certain areas. There's not much details to it, but it has knows what it wants to do what it wants to push forward, to, to forward, um, but there's not much detail to it. And then it's oftentimes the local government that execute it and also to, to come up with more details. So there are two, two ways that help the workers, or the two ways that makes the workers feel like it's the local government to be blamed. Um, because the first way is that um, the details of the laws are all given by the local government. So then the workers sometimes say, oh, the central government, when they make this law, they have good intentions. They want to protect workers. It's just the local government, when they give details to it, it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. So another, another way that the, the, the current labor law system that helps the work, helps to protect the central party stays from fundamentally criticized by the workers is that um, oftentimes the workers feel like there's good laws on paper. It's just the implementations is bad. Um, So the implementations is always related to the local level, local government. The workers feel like it's just either the local individual officials that don't, that neglected the law, that don't um, implement the laws, or it's just the local government as a whole, they are are pro-capitalist, they are not pro-labor. So um, and they, therefore, they wouldn't challenge the, the cent, cent, central government. They still believe the central government have good intentions, they want to protect them.
0: Uh, it's just the local government or individual officials have issues. So in my uh, utopian view as someone who's poor, so I can be a utopianist, I don't have to be a pragmatist, um, I want to abolish things like Amazon or, you know, any of these myriad of I want to abolish Didi. I don't want these, I don't want capitalism. And what reading your book is really interesting is a challenge. uh, And I know it's specific to domestically in China, but China is central to how capitalism functions globally. Is you sort of place how China has constructed unions as something that, that reifies capitalism and, and even in the best Example of union activism in China, which is few and far between, um, it often ends up just integrating the workers and uh, the hegemony capitalism has over them. It just ends up strengthening that. So I'm just wondering very briefly for people who are unfamiliar, could you talk about the general union structure in China? Why is it so... um, uh, Why does it seem to be set up uh, in the service of capital rather than labor? And then more broadly, how did researching this book affect how you see unions as either a revolutionary or counter-revolutionary um, uh, force in the <laughs> in the perhaps utopian fight against abolishing capitalism? Are unions something that we should really unequivocally endorse? or is it far more complex because of some of these uh, aspects I've brought up of, is it actually just reinforcing capitalism?
1: The trade unions is under the leadership of the communist party. So it's a party organ. Um, so and so it's following the order of the party. Um, so there's different, uh, they, they organize unions according to the administrative structures of China. So there's our national unions, ACFTU, and there's provincial branches, city branches, are street, at the street level, they also have street branches and enterprise level, enterprise branches. So um, at the higher level, like the national unions, the provincial unions, they are further away from the employers. So they are more manipulated or more um subjected to the dominations of the party state, but then the unions at the lower level like at the enterprise level at the street level or the district level they are having closer relations with their employers so at the enterprise level the unions leaders the union chairs oftentimes they're appointed by their employers um, and then the union executives are also like this so then because they're employed by their Appointed by the employers, they are having they are influenced by the employers, the pro pro employers, and then for the local government, like the street level government or the um, the, the district government, um, because having our economic activities is important for for them. They have to have make sure they have income. They have to make sure they do well in terms of economic development, so that they can be a they they they, they can report back up to the central government. So then local government at the lower level, they also concern about the employers. They're pro-employers because they want to have some type of economic activities going on. So then therefore they're also more pro-employers. So, but anyway, so the unions in China, they are, of course, on the one hand, they follow the instructions, order of party states, but on the other hand, at the lower level, they are also pro-employers. So that makes them, uh, very labor and friendly um, and about your questions about the role of the unions in general are they are uh, revolutionary forces or counter revolutionary forces so for me um, based on the experience of China and also based on my understanding of what happened in other countries, um, I always feel like unions is a as a vehicles collective vehicles for workers to exercise their their potential forces to bring changes to their workplace level, social and political level and economic levels. But if that vehicle doesn't work, I I, I wouldn't essentialize that vehicles. I wouldn't think union must necessarily be good, union must necessarily be promoting the workers' interest. If that vehicle doesn't work, from my perspective, we we can seek new vehicles. Um, In the Chinese context, um, a lot of workers they actually ask for help from labor NGOs, right? Some labor NGOs, they are, they are progressive, some are less progressive, but anyway, some some labor organizations, they work well. So then then they could be a vehicle for helping or for organizing the workers, collectivity. So in some other countries, maybe the unions, they're not good at organizing, for example, migrant workers or the informal workers, but the worker centers, they may play a better role. So for me, it's, Uh, I think we have to see like which platform, which vehicles works best for the workers in a particular context.
0: So to conclude, we'll end then with uh, radical workers. So these were workers in your book, you look at um, from my memory, and you'll correct me in your response, three types of workers, people who are very enthusiastic about um, labor laws, truly believe the party is looking out for their interest you have then apathetic workers that's probably me even though I started off radical but now I'm more apathetic <laughs> uh, who say essentially doesn't matter you know I don't really have power I just sort of go with the flow if this job abuses me I'll just go get another job they're all the same and then you have uh, radical workers so these would be people like um, I'm just gonna say a couple names who are more well known internationally, but people like Xiangze and Mengzhu, Jasek might fall in there as well. Uh, And these uh, are people who uh, do not um, agree with nor uh, are confined to the hegemonic view that the party wants to inculcate and indoctrinate all citizens with about how they should relate to capital or the state. So this is how you describe revolution, uh, radical workers, and then I'll ask you uh, one or two final questions. The radical workers have overcome double hegemonic effects to formulate radical challenges to both the capitalist economy and the party state. Concerning capital-labor relations, first, while many affirmative, ambivalent, and critical workers have taken labor laws as a benchmark to gauge the behavior of employers and as a reference for defining fairness and justice, the radical workers are relatively immune to the normalizing mechanism of legal hegemony that seeks to normalize wage labor, surplus value extraction, profit maximization, and other capitalist managerial practices. The radical workers do not consider the legal minimum wage to be fair. So first, I think it's really interesting um, we don't, we haven't talked about, um, the carceral aspects of China, of which there are many. There's many sticks that go along with beating people back into accepting, uh, hegemony as, as there are, uh, everywhere. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your experience in studying these radical workers. Why did hegemony, and I know it's it, you do case-by-case studies as well as macro studies, but generally speaking, why was hegemony not effective? And then how does the party state deal with those who refuse or cannot be indoctrinated with its capitalist hegemony?
1: How some radical workers, they kind of overcome the hegemony effects. Um, I think uh, I talked to some workers from the car industry. They 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 were relatively young and also like a little bit more well educated. They finished the a vocational training school. I mean, like younger and more education versus the first generation of the migrant workers who is now maybe already retired or in their fifties of and then are who might just it. A few years in their elementary school, so um, those car workers that I talked to, um, they actually somehow they figured how much their their the car manufacturer earned. They also they, they also know like for example they made the trans they was they're responsible for the transformers of the car, so they they knew that the transformers is the most important part of the car. They knew how expensive they were, and they, they, they would compare the old wages to how much the car manufacturers earned. They are not comparing the wages to the legal minimum wage. Um, they are comparing to how much the capitalists earned. Um, I think somehow uh, some scholars have mentioned about the second generation of the migrant workers. Uh, they pointed out that they are more vocal, they are less tolerant of capitalist exploitations, less tolerant of um, unfairness, they're more willing to take actions. I think this is um, one thing that worth considered or worth to bear in mind. Like the younger generations that I talked to, they also have shown this characteristics. They um, realized how much their employers earned and how little they earned and they were dissatisfied. And one day they just took on strike. They go on strike. Um, So, This is one
0: thing. And then uh, what happens to those who uh, actively antagonize the hegemony that the party state uh, uh, projects? Mm. Okay, when everything is normal, when nothing's happened, are
1: the coercive component of the party state lay in the back. Right. But when the workers become more rebellious, become more radical, then the coercive elements will we see it will come back. And so um, for. Um, some car workers that I interviewed and who initiated uh, some nominal, I mean, like prominent strike in China. Um, So the the government, at the time of the strike, um, of course, used course tactics. They tried to reach out to their families and let the families to give them pressures. Um, And also, they also tried to uh, ask various people, like, maybe our trade unions, officials to go talk to them, um, and then also try to discourage them from our uh, being, this is post-strike. After the strike, some 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 strikers and workers, they wanted to have more reform, to push for more reform in workplace and at the union level, but then um, our, they were being strongly discouraged by their government officials, by the union officials, or even, are stopping them from traveling, of course, within the countries to talk about their experience. Um, so, but that said, during that period of time, is during the One period, um, it's not that not that bad, but I, I would believe that if it is what taking place now, then a lot of them will be just like the labor activists, labor NGO activists uh, have been phasing. There are a lot of them uh, was in jail, and some of the labor activists are still in jail. So um, I, I think this are when their hegemonies hegemonic impacts is not no longer working. The government will use jail, arrest, co- consistent surveillance, monitoring such type of tactics to deal with their radical workers or activists.
0: So my Marxism is rusty, but I believe people like Harvey. Um, I'm trying to think who else. It doesn't matter though. Uh, have written a lot about Marx's sort of declining rate of profit, uh, and that you know this is this is the the grim reaper's site that hangs over all of capitalism. It's there's only so much growth to be had. And I'm wondering the party has put so much effort into uh, establishing uh, the ACFTU. It, it's so much effort into um, directing workers towards labor laws as a way to legitimate capitalist, uh, its double hegemony of capitalism and the nation state. Uh, Xi Jinping's Chinese dream, which sounds like something Ronald Reagan would say if he had been you know, born in Chengdu, uh, is, uh, is something that probably cannot be delivered for the vast majority of China's citizens. Uh, And the party is increasingly turning to super exploitative labor again in the form of uh, the gig economy and and what some call platform capitalism, uh, because these other areas just there's not enough growth for the amount of citizens that the CCP governs. And I'm wondering um, what you sort of are seeing as future contradictions of capitalism that may be arising in China. Under the Xi era, we've talked a lot about the who, when, uh, and Deng eras. But for the Xi era, just as our last question, and then I'll give you space for an outro. What contradictions of capitalism do you see perhaps emerging? And how do you perhaps see the party state pivoting if its mechanisms for hegemony are no longer effective? I can't use an ACFTU with a gig economy. Um, so what will the party use in the future and what contradictions is the party uh, going to have to deal with um, that you see moving forward?
1: You're, I think you point out one thing that um, for Hatchimani to money be, to be effective, uh, nationalism previously I mentioned is one, one foundation. And then another st- strong and important foundation is to maintain the economic growth, to maintain are effective capital culminations. So that people feel like, oh, our country is doing great in terms of economy and I have a job, uh, I get wage increase every year. So about the economic foundation of the hegemony, you mentioned that, oh, so how to maintain the capitalist Um, I think for China, there's a few strategies. Um, so the gig economy you mentioned is one. And then another thing is within the traditional manufacturing industry, uh, it's try to upgrade itself. So previously it was largely like a suppliers, um, but then starting from mid-2000s, it to talk about industrial upgrade. So it used various policies to kick those uh, manufacturers is a very uh, low technological uh, standard out of the country and to promote or to help those manufacturers that is more technologically, more advanced, more profitable to continue their business in China. So as a result, a lot of like uh, small, medium-sized factories are move out of China. So I think conducting the industrial upgrade is one thing. Um, and also, of course, trying to help particular in uh, firms like Huawei or, or some other big firms to build up their the their business is another strategies. And the third strategies is to um, to to, uh, kind of outsource part of the capitalist accumulation process to other countries, right? To to reach out to other countries um, to obtain resources from our African countries or to try to obtain, build up market in U.S. and Europe uh, and then to try to build up supplying factories, to build manufacturing factories in Mexico or in other countries. Low, low labor cost countries. So I think these are their strategies for the Chinese government or the Chinese party state right now to maintain a certain level of capital a certain level of economic growth, so that the legitimacy of the party states is maintained and so that the mechanisms of hegemonies could also be
0: maintained. What challenges do you see moving forward? At
1: the very beginning, I said I kind of categorized the period Of our Chinese development from 1978 till right now into three. So I mentioned that the first period, I call it passive revolutions or top down revolutions, top down implementing capitalism. The second period is emerging hegemonies, which means hegemony started to be growing in China. And right now is what I call the eroding hegemony, which means that the hegemonic foundations being built in the previous government is kind of eroding. Because um, for hegemony to be working, are the state and the capitalists, they need to make sure the workers have some kind of concessions so that they won't fundamentally criticize the party state or the capitalist systems. But then this type of concessions, actually, um, I we just said they're eroding. Uh, the government is less willing to give concessions to workers. Let's take minimum wage as an example. I mentioned that in 2004, uh, the Huang government implemented the the minimum wage policies. At that time, since that time, almost like every two years, each province they will adjust the minimum wage. But that recently since 2017, the Chinese government starts to have new policies saying that they don't need to be adjusted every two years. You can do it less frequently. So um I don't have the statistics with me right now, but I think Last, as of 2000, 2020, November, many provinces in China hasn't, haven't actually raised the minimum wage after two years of implementations of the last minimum standard, minimum wage standards. So if they don't raise the minimum wage, workers' wages become stagnant. Its nominal wages become stagnant. Its real wages, of course, is decreasing. Um, so the workers will feel less well, well benefit or less well off and their materi- material uh, dissatisfaction will become greater. And so that may late, later materials uh, cease for their discontent. And then also another thing is the Chinese central government is not allowing for more flexible way of working in China. So this, they used to be, the working hours in China used to be like very strict, like eight hours a day, five days a week. Uh, the overtime is calculated on this basis, but now they expanded this core uh, comprehensive work hour system, which is like flexible working hour system. The workers, they are guaranteed are uh, certain hours within a month, like for example, every month, you have to work like uh, 165 hours. But then each day, how many hours? you? You, you need to work, they, they, they don't have regulations, which means that on one day you can work 20 hours and next day you can work just one hour. And then through this way, their employers actually pay less overtime and uh, less leaves to workers. But anyway, this is quite complicated. But what I mean is that um, from the workers' perspectives, their working conditions is getting worse in terms of, at least in terms of working hours and wages. So they, they will get angry easier and that will that may lead to their, that may lead to the point that they may take on take on actions more easily um so this is one one of the reasons that i said oh now the hegemony is eroding because their concessional foundations is weaker and
0: weaker and weaker just very briefly for the outro could you tell people a little bit about uh the full title of your book uh and then just a brief introduction if they want to purchase the book based on our conversation today so the title of my book is Hegemonic Transformation with Dates, Laws, and Labour Relations
1: in Post-Socialist China. So it's published by Palgrave. So if people are interested in the book, interested in getting, in getting a copy, you can visit uh, the Palgrave website or I think Amazon may have it too.